uh, in right now. If you're new to us, if you've been visiting, uh, you've probably seen the banners as you've come on in, and, and it, the banners tell what the series is all about, and we're calling it Encounters with God, Stories of Grace Overcoming Guilt. And what I've pointed out to you is that we're going to uh, realize some themes that come over and over again in these stories, and one of them is that when God confronts human beings, He reveals Himself for who He is. We often like to put God into a little box and make God the God of our own invention, but God explodes our box. He will not be contained by our imagination because He is the creator of everything, just as in, in the prayer earlier we were thanking God for who He is. God reveals to us Himself to people through His Word and confronts us with who He is, not just the God that we would like Him to be. But another theme is that God shows us for who we are. One thing that I'm very aware of, especially as we come to church and interact with each other, is that we love to be affirmed. We like to be liked, don't we? We want people to think well of us. In fact, what we really want is we want our projection of ourselves to be what people actually see instead of the real self. But you know what? There is a real self down deep inside, and it is sometimes not very pretty. In fact, we know from the Bible that the heart is, the Bible says, desperately wicked. It's, it's deceitful above all things. So deceitful, in fact, that no one actually knows the, in, the, the extent of their own self-deceit. This is what the Bible reveals to us. It shows us, when God confronts a person, as we're going to continue to discover, it shows us our own nature. But another theme that we see is that God overwhelms that with His grace. And, and this is going to be the overwhelming theme throughout this, and that's why we're calling it stories of grace overcoming guilt. Because as we see God for who He is, and we realize that we are so infinitely below God because of His holiness and His majesty and His power, and yet we see ourselves for who we are, we also see God's grace as it is offered to us. And we're going to see that over and over again. And that is uh, what we're focusing on these few months uh, through this series called Encounters with God. I also want to make a comment about the kind of preaching that I'm doing. I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention again that I believe that the most important kind of preaching that is healthy for a church is what is called expository preaching. And that simply means that a preacher gets up and he explains what the Word of God says to people and, and what it means for them. So you take a passage just like we did with Romans 8. I walked through that chapter verse by verse, and I took the the specific words, I defined them, I told you how they work in connection with each other, and, and I applied that to our lives. That's expository preaching. The kind of preaching that I'm doing now is still expository preaching, but we're dealing with very different kinds of Scripture. The book of Romans is a letter, and Paul, as a writer, is a very tight, logical kind of writer. Now we're dealing with narratives, that is stories, and we have so many, so many more words that I'm not able to deal with them verse by verse. Instead, we're taking the whole gist of the story, the thrust of these stories, explaining the meaning of these, and applying them to our lives. And so it's a different kind of expository preaching, expositing, expositing specific passages along a theme throughout Scripture. And in this series, we're taking specific encounters with God that human beings have had, and we're seeing what happens when God confronts a human being. We started with Adam and Eve after they sinned. We've looked at Cain, and last week we looked at Abraham when God makes a promise to him. And this week we're going to take another time to look at Abraham because there is this extremely important event in Genesis chapter 22 
in which God gives Abraham a very difficult, difficult command. And so we're expositing these passages uh, along a theme. If you want to know what's coming up ahead, we've actually posted the sermon, the sermon schedule on the internet on our website, and you'll find that under resources and then the sermon schedule. And if you want to, for your benefit, you could look ahead and prepare and look at the passages and, and read and pray over those. And that will really maximize, I think, the impact of God's Word in your life as you know what's coming up uh, ahead in this series. Genesis chapter 22, I read the passage uh, earlier in the service, so we have that in our minds. But let's go to the Lord and let's ask Him to help us understand this and be willing to respond however He wants us to. Let's pray. Our Father, this is Your Word. And this is your time, and this is your place, and we are your people. You are calling us to faith and obedience just like you called Abraham to believe you. Lord, we have to walk by faith just like Abraham had to walk by faith. There are things that we cannot see just like there are things that Abraham could not see. But we are praying that you would give us the faith to believe and submit to your word. There are things that need to be done in our hearts that we don't even know about because we tend to deceive ourselves. I pray that you would just rip off the covers so that we can submit to you and find the joy, the joy that you offer us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is said of the great conqueror, Alexander the Great, that after he had defeated uh, the, the Egyptians and after he had been in Asia, Alexander the Great wept because there were no more worlds for him to conquer. It was obvious what he was living for. He was living for power and fame and the prestige that came with being the greatest conqueror on the world. Sometimes makes us think when we hear about things like this, what, what am I living for? What are you living for? What gets you up in the morning? What motivates you to go to work? How, how would you know what you're living for? It can be difficult. We're complicated beings. One way that you might be able to find out what you're living for is not just asking the question, what am I living for? But try this. Consider this question. What is it in your life which, if it's taken away, would make you think, my life isn't worth living anymore? What is it right now that in your life, that if that were to be taken away, you would say, my life is just not worth living anymore? Now, that may help you realize in a clearer way what you are living for. If there's anything at any time in Abraham's life that caused him to feel like his life was not worth living anymore, it would have been this moment when he felt like Isaac was being torn away from him. The most precious thing to him, the object of all God's promises, the focus of, of for years of his life was all concentrated into this one young man, Isaac. And he's given this shocking command. And this is a disturbing story. People don't 
they don't cross-stitch quotes from the opening part of this story. You don't see internet memes, inspirational memes, saying, take your son, your only son, and offer him as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I will show you. This is disturbing. This is, this is difficult. This is hard for us to understand. And as I study this passage and looked at what other people over the, over the centuries have, ever since there have been commentators, they've wrestled through the meaning of this passage. There's an, and many, as many varieties of interpretations of this chapter as there are varieties of cereals in the cereal or at the grocery store. It's, there's so many different things that these commentators have said about that, and that's why it's so important for us to stick with the plain teaching of Scripture. What does the Bible say this passage is all about? And if we understand that, I think we'll understand what God has to say to us through this passage because there is something that we need desperately to understand and know. I think the most important way to understand this story is in the very first few words of verse 1 of chapter 22. And it is this, after these things, God tested Abraham. We must understand this entire story in the context of this statement. God was testing Abraham. What is a test? A test is an opportunity to prove something, to show something that would not be shown were the test not there, just like you might test the strength of a branch by putting pressure on that branch. You, you figure out how strong it is by, by putting pressure on it. It wouldn't demonstrate the strength unless you put the pressure on it. Like if you're taking a test at school, you're demonstrating how much you know by putting pressure on your brain, the pressure to answer these sort of questions, to demonstrate what would not be demonstrated were it not for the pressure that was applied. So we have to understand what's going on in Genesis 22 as a test. God is putting Abraham's faith to the test. And so this is how we're going to unfold this passage. We're going to look at the occasion of this test. We're going to look at the object or the objective of this test. And then finally, we're going to look at the outcome of this test. So the occasion of the test, the objective of the test, and then third, the outcome of this test. So let's go ahead and look at the occasion of the test. What is the occasion? Why is this happening at this time in Abraham's life? I think it's very important that this chapter opens with the words, after these things. You see that in verse 1 of chapter 22. The fact that it's opening with these words alerts us to this fact that what's going on in Genesis 22 is a continuation of what has happened in Abraham's life leading up to this point. So if we're going to understand the full impact of this test of Abraham having to offer up his son Isaac, his beloved son Isaac, if we're going to understand the impact of it, you need to understand what happened beforehand. Where is Abraham at in the process of his life? Just to give you a quick summary, in chapter 12... God has spoken to Abraham, and he said, hey, you need to leave your father's house and go to a country that I'm going to show you. And God made this massive promise to Abraham. In fact, it was a promise that he had made to no other person at this, course, at this point in human history. Up to this point, God was dealing with humanity in general, and now God focuses all his attention on this one man and gives him a promise. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land I'm going to give you descendants, and I'm going to give you a blessing. In fact, your descendants will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And so God gives 
Abraham this promise. There's some problems, though, and that is when God promised Abraham a land, he didn't have a land. He couldn't even see the land. He wasn't in the land. There was another problem. God said, you're going to have offspring. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were really old. They were not able to have children. Biological impossibility. And if they could not have children, how then could their descendants be a blessing to all the nations of the earth? So God gives Abraham a promise that he has to receive simply, not by sight because he can't see it, but by faith. This is what God is calling Abraham to do. And so Abraham, he believes that. He goes to the land, and then more problems come up. We, we find hints that Abraham kind of reasoned that perhaps the descendant that he would have would be through maybe Lot, because he brought Lot with him. But Lot, through a series of tragic choices, proved that he wasn't going to be the descendant. Lot began to camp right towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham later on reveals that he had this idea that, that the servant part of his entourage, part of his, his possessions. He had a servant named Eliezer, and, and he thought, okay, maybe, maybe God is going to bless the nations of the world, and Eliezer is going to be my descendant. God says, it's not going to be Eliezer. It's going to be the product of you and Sarah, even though you don't have any children right now. So Abraham continues to walk by faith. At one point, trying to help God out, Abraham has a child through Sarah's servant, Hagar. And, and the idea is, okay, it's going to come through Ishmael, Hagar's son, that, that she had through Abraham. And God says it's not going to be through Ishmael. And finally, God gives Abraham his son Isaac. After years of waiting, after years of hoping, after years it finally comes, after years of having to walk by faith, and it makes sense then that Genesis chapter 21 ends with a feeling of security. I mean, not only did Abraham have this hope and, and dream and, and that finally Isaac would be born, but there was this dispute about some wells and some land that finally gets resolved. So you end with chapter 1 with this feeling like, ah, everything is going to be okay. Abraham calls on God, verse 33 of chapter 21, and he calls on the name of the of the Lord, the everlasting God, and he sojourns there for many days. You just get this feeling of, okay, let's end the story right there because we're on a high note. We're, it's a good place to wrap this up, so let's end it right here. And then comes chapter 22. What's going on here? At this point in the story, Abraham feels that everything is right and settled and secure, and this is the occasion for the testing. Yeah, up to this point, Abraham had to walk by faith and not by sight. And now for the first time, because Isaac has finally been born, the son is finally here, he has a choice to walk by sight and not by faith. He has the temptation to put his confidence not in God as the provider, which is what he's had to do all the way up to this point, but in the provisions of God. Abraham is in danger of putting his trust in the things that God gives rather than in the giver. And we see that 
God is putting his finger on this in Abraham's life, even in the very wording of his command. You see a reason for this in verse 2 when God says, take your son, your only son, not to say that Abraham hadn't fathered another son, Ishmael, but this was the only son of the promise. Not only that, not only was he his son, his only son, but also the son that he loves and offer him as a burnt offering. You know what? We have the same tendency that Abraham had, and that is to take something good and turn it into something that we worship, to take something that God has given us and treat it as if it's God itself. And another word for that is idolatry. See, our, our hearts tend to make idols out of things. As human beings, we are worshipers. It's our very nature to take something and put it on a pedestal so high that we hope to have comfort and, and security and, and self-esteem and find our identity and meaning in that thing. That's what we tend to do. And we could do this with anything. But what few people realize is that whatever we set all our hopes on, whatever we find meaning in, it must be infinite, and it must be perfect, because nothing else will sustain the weight of all our affections. And this is what Abraham was in danger of doing. Anything else that we treat as ultimate except God will ruin us. There's a quote from a writer who has since passed away. His name is David Foster Wallace. I've quoted it before, but I think it's important because even though this man was not a Christian, he understands his own nature, understands human, human nature so well. He says this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Isn't it true? that we tend to turn these things into things we worship? Because nothing else can sustain the weight of our highest adoration. Only God. Because only God is infinite. Only God is perfect. Our hearts, as I've reminded us many times, have this infinite void in them that only God can fill. And now that Isaac, back to our story, now that Isaac is here, how will it be shown that Abraham's affection, how will it be shown that his trust is not in Isaac, but in the God that provided Isaac? 
I mean, how will it ever be demonstrated that now that Isaac is here, he's still going to walk by faith and not by sight when the thing that he was hoping for is finally seen? And that is the crisis of the story. That is why the, the, the narrator Moses says, after these things, after what things? After all this feeling of security, after his hope was finally realized, now God says, are you willing to trust me even when your greatest hope and everything that you're tending to set your affection, even if that's taken away, will you still believe that I could keep my promises? Yes, Abraham was able to believe that God could give him a son even when it was a biological impossibility, but would he give him a son, would he provide that son's life to be sustained even when it looked like that would be a biological impossibility? That is the occasion for the test. And so now that we've seen the occasion of the test, we'll move to the object of the test. And it's, now that we've seen the occasion, it's pretty clear what the object of it is, and that is to see, will Abraham, will he live still by faith? Or will he live by sight? Will he live as if there's something to be good to be found outside of God that is in God's provisions, or will he still live as if God is the only source of good? And if you think about it, wasn't this the very thing that Adam and Eve fell prey to when they were tempted to take the, take the forbidden fruit? Remember the lie that, that the serpent told them? That God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, you're going to be like God's, knowing good and evil? In other words, although God has said that he is the fountain of goodness and all these things come from him, yet there is something else you need to be happy. There's some good to be found outside of God. That is the very essence of sin. Now the question is, is Abraham himself, the, the father of the faithful, the one on whom God has put his promises, is he going to succumb to the same sort of doubt? Now, this is the only way that we will see if Abraham's faith, his confidence, his adoration is in God alone, if he believes that God can keep his promises no matter what. And so this is where this command comes from, verse 2, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, at this point, I think we need to deal with the question, why this command? I don't think anybody would, would, would object to say that this is not a, a, a disturbing and alarming kind of thing to read in Scripture, that why would God command Abraham to do this? First of all, we should accept and, and humbly realize that God can do whatever He wants. We, we tend to so easily forget that. Like we we read Genesis 1, we realize, okay, God is responsible for the existence of everything, and then, then after that we very quickly hold him to what we perceive him, him to be. God is sovereign over all, but beyond that, we know that God must act consistently with his character. Right? God has said very clearly in other places, many places throughout Scripture, that child sacrifice is absolutely condemned. It's something that We see this in Leviticus chapter 20. We see this throughout the, the record of the kings of Israel. Some of the, some of the kings of Israel actually, they were, got involved in this horrible practice of child sacrifice. And it would be inconsistent of God had he actually allowed Abram, Abraham to continue on and do this. That would have been inconsistent with God. But we have to put all of this in the context of, of what we said at the very beginning. This was a test. Ultimately, we know God did not actually allow Abraham to kill his son. And furthermore, 
the, the, the reasons as we wrestle with the, the why of this command is that God can do what He wants. God acts consistently within His character. He does so because this is a test. He never actually allowed uh, Abraham to kill Isaac. But also, a, a third point to remember is that Abraham occupied a unique place in history. Like, never again would someone have to demonstrate the kind of faith that Abraham had to demonstrate because became the, the focus of God's promises as Abraham did in the, in the covenant that we looked at last week. And so people wonder, well, what if God gives such an outrageous command today? God has given us everything we didn't know, need to know in this book, the Bible. God does not continue to give new revelation. This, this is our ultimate revelation. God will say nothing to us that conflicts with this word. Everything that you need to know, everything that God wants you to do will be found in this book, the Bible. That's not to say that there may be some commands that God gives and we have to accept them by faith, not knowing what, how the outcome will be. And the question that Abraham faced, the challenge that we face, is this. Will we rest in God's provisions or in God the provider? And so we come third to the outcome of the test. The outcome of the test. And let's see this as it develops from the text. I know we read this. I want us to note how this test unfolds. We're not told what Abraham is thinking, but we can only imagine what he's thinking. And it seems that the details of this story unfold in such a way as to make us, us think about what might have been going through his mind. It's almost like it's happening in slow motion. You know when you're watching a movie and something very dramatic happens and it zooms on someone's face and everything is slow motion, what you're doing is you're, you're transferring what your emotions would be in that scenario to the person whose face you're, you're watching. And we have a similar thing going on here. We have these almost agonizing details of Abraham cutting the wood and saddling the donkey and taking with him two servants and, and going to the mountain and then putting having the servants stay and taking Isaac and they're walking up and you have this dialogue between Abraham and his son. It's almost just intensifying the agony in slow motion for us because we know Abraham the whole time is thinking, I'm going to have to sacrifice my son, my beloved son, my only son, the son of the promise, the son on whom all my hopes and dreams and God's promises hang. This is going on in Abraham's mind. And, and, and so the, the question that we're asking is, what is the outcome of this? And there are two outcomes. The one we are impressed with, but not entirely surprised. And the other outcome is a surprise. So first of all, the outcome of this test is that Abraham demonstrated unshaking faith. How do we know this? Well, look at his actions. Look at what he did. He obeyed God. God had promised to Abraham that, his, that he would have descendants through Isaac, and yet the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham this whole time is in faith assuming, okay, God is going to have to do something 
even if it's raising Isaac from the dead, because God is going to keep his promise. I'm going to obey. I don't know how God's going to work this out. I don't know how God's going to provide, but I know that he will provide, and so I'm going to obey. This is what Abraham is doing. It's demonstrated by the obedience of Abraham. He, he obeyed. He rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He made all the preparations that he needed to. And we also see this in Abraham's words. Have you noticed what Abraham says in this story? What does he say? He doesn't say very much, but what he says is very significant. We see some of his words in verse 5. Look at that. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. What is Abraham saying? He's saying to his servants, We're going to go. And we're coming back. Did Abraham know how that was going to happen? No idea. He believed that he would. That was faith. What else do we see? Look at verse 8. In his response to Isaac, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham is believing that somehow the sacrifice would be made and God would provide. This is Abraham's faith. He believed. He trusted. And there's a third thing that Abraham says, and it's repeated three times. Did you notice this? First time we see it in verse 1. God calls Abraham, and Abraham says what? Here I am. We see it also in verse 7. In this, this time it's in response to Isaac. My father, Isaac says, here I am. And the third time, he says in response to God, God calls Abraham, Abraham, and he says, here I am. Those are the words of a man who is fully submitting to God. Those are the words of a man who was living by faith. So the outcome of this is definitely faith. We not only see this in Abraham's actions, in his words, we also see this in the New Testament when writers reflect on what happened. And I'll read this to you from the writer of the Hebrews. It says this, By faith, this is in Hebrews chapter 11, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac your offspring shall be named. He considered, here it is, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We see all this also in James. James says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Please note that James is using the word justified in the sense of demonstrating one's righteousness, not in gaining one's righteousness. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. James is saying, did Abraham believe? Absolutely. He proved his belief by his unflinching obedience to the command of God. Even when he could not see how God was going to provide, he believed that God would provide. Why? Because he had faith in God the provider. And we see this in the testimony of God himself, not only from Abraham's actions, Abraham's words, the testimony of the New Testament writers, but also God himself right here in this story. This is what he says in verse 12. Look at it. God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Why? For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So the outcome of this test was that Abraham believed. 
But consider what would have happened had he not believed. Yes, it would have been a tragic thing for Abraham to have slaughtered his son, something God never would have allowed to happen. Yet had Abraham allowed his son to become his God, he would have destroyed both himself and Isaac. That's what happens when we turn things that are not meant to be worshipped into idols. That's what happens when we take a job, a career, or a romantic relationship, or something, and we turn it into the, only, the thing that we are trying to derive all our satisfaction from. It ruins us in it. And yet Abraham had faith in God, the provider. Now, if the story ended here, it would seem like a neat little package, okay? So, God tests Abraham. Abraham walks by faith. He, he goes through it right until God stops him. And then God stops him and says, don't lay your hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear me because you're not withholding Isaac, your only son, from me. Uh, that would, it seemed like it would have been a fitting way to, to wrap this up. Remember, I said there were two outcomes. One is impressive, that is Abraham's faith, but one is surprising. And what is surprising about the outcome of this story? It is this, that God actually did require a sacrifice. A sacrifice still had to be made, which tells us this story was not just about Abraham's being tested. This story was about what God was willing to provide for Abraham and Isaac. And, and here's where the story takes this unexpected twist. Because we thought it was all about a test for Abraham, when in fact, this is about God demonstrating his unflinching commitment. Yes, Abraham demonstrated unflinching faith, but now God is saying, I am going to provide a sacrifice for you. And we realize that Abraham's words, as he and his son Isaac marched up that terrible route to the top of Mount Moriah, his words, God himself will provide a lamb, were truer than he even knew. Because there would be another hill near the same area, the hill of Calvary, upon which another sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would ascend. And he would be the ultimate provision. The story ends with these words. So Abraham, in verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And here's what we realize as we finish the story, not with Abraham's faith, but with God's provision, is what God is saying. Yes, a sacrifice is needed. Yes, your idolatry is so intertwined to your, into your heart that someone has to die for your sin. But God, in his love, allows the person who dies not to be you, but to be his beloved son, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God. He is the one that lived a perfect life. He never did anything wrong. If anybody should have deserved God's favor and acceptance, it was Jesus Christ. And yet what happened at the end of his life? He died the death of abandonment that we should have had. Yes, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That mount of the Lord is Calvary. Where the ultimate provision for our sin was given. When we realize that, 
that Jesus died for me, it so utterly humbles us because it makes us understand that our sins were so bad that it took the death of Jesus to make it right, to pay for it. And at the same time, it elates us. It, it gives us joy because we realize that he did die for me. This is why we can say with Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I am the foremost of them. I don't know about you all, but I know about my sin, and I know that it took the death of Jesus Christ to pay for that sin as my substitute. And it is only when you realize God's provision in Jesus Christ that you can walk by faith at all. I read this story, I, I wrestle with this, and I think, how can I ever walk by faith like Abraham did? And the fact is, only as you realize that God has provided everything you need in Jesus. That's how you can walk by faith. Only as you realize in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And that provision was Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us? It means if you're in a position today where you have, you have never realized that before, never realized that your, your, your sin is of such a depth that it takes the Son of God, Jesus, to die for it. If you've never realized it before, what you need to do is you need to believe in Him. That means that you're accepting the fact that what He did was actually for you personally and turning from all your efforts to build meaning and, and righteousness and goodness on your own and abandon all that and turn, turn to Jesus Christ because of what He has done for you. That's what you need to do. And, and if you have done that, and you're looking at me this morning, you're saying, yeah, that's, that, that is me, I've done that, then, then you can walk by faith. Then you can put all your confidence, with all your confidence in Jesus' provision for you. Let that be the spring of your joy and righteousness and pursuit of Christ-likeness. Let that motivate everything you do. And that's how we can walk by faith. Because God has provided, and the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Let's bow our heads. We're going to pray together in just a moment. God's Word always requires a response from us. And it could be that you're here and you're just, a, you're just wondering, you're, you're skeptical. You might be afraid to let anybody know that you're not really certain about these things. Let me just assure you, it's okay. It's better, it's better to ask, it's better to seek than it is to pretend you have it all together. And if that's you, I'm speaking to you. And I believe God is speaking to you too. That you need to abandon all your own efforts, all, all the things that you've tried to do to find meaning and fulfillment and identity and realize you have no meaning, you have no fulfillment, you have no identity in anybody but Jesus because only he and what he's done can satisfy you. We call that repentance, and faith. And if that's true of you, right after this service, right after we dismiss, there are some people in the foyer. They're standing right by the Welcome Center. 
and they can take a Bible, and they can pray with you, and they can answer any questions you have. And I, I encourage you to, to, to make a beeline for that Welcome Center and find those people. They'll be standing right to the left of the Welcome Center, and they will pray with you, and they can help you just to take whatever your next steps are in that area. And if you're a believer in Christ, and you realize there is something God is, I'm realizing, has so intertwined itself into my heart, it's becoming an idol, you, you need to abandon that and look to Christ and let his provision be what motivates your obedience and your following Christ. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to have genuine encounters with you in which you speak to us and reveal who, us for who we are, you for who you are. And that we, as we see these stories of your grace overcoming our guilt, that these stories would be our story as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time Matt will come and lead us in a song. Abraham and Isaac lived in a time where burnt offerings and sacrifices were required on a continual basis. That day on the mountain, God provided that ram for them, but that was not the last ram that they would ever sacrifice. They would continually need to do that as long as they lived. But we live in a time where Christ came once and sacrificed himself and shed his blood for us once, and that's all we need. With his sacrifice, he has pardoned our sin, and we can be complete in Christ. Let's stand as we sing our closing hymn, Complete in Thee.